Well, I'm grateful to be here and to be starting with you today. Today's my first day of work, and uh, I appreciate you already, the many ways that you've been hospitable with me, and that's a spiritual gift of hospitality. It's what we do, it's what we offer of ourselves anytime someone walks into our midst. The gift of the church is to be hospitable, to find a way to welcome people, to you know move aside and let them in and then introduce yourself to them and get to know them in a particular way. This is the season this fall where I will be learning names. And a great number of you are behind masks, and so it's already a handicap in terms of meeting and registering with me about your name and your face, trying to get half of your face together with your name. So if I, if I met you last week and I don't know who you are this week, um, help me out, and we'll, we'll help each other. As has already been mentioned, the, the sermons for the next several weeks will be in the book of James. And if somehow you have not read the book of James, it takes about half an hour to read. And it is ultra clear in its pragmatism. If you don't like the Bible for its esoteric language and its philosophy and its poetry and, you know, all of those things, give James a chance Find a good reading of it. We're reading today out of the message, and so I want to read this text for us. Every desirable and beneficial gift comes out of heaven. The gifts are rivers of light cascading down from the Father of light. There is nothing deceitful in God, nothing two-faced, nothing fickle. He, God, brought us to life using the true word, showing us off as the crown of all God's creatures. Post this at the intersections, dear friends. Lead with your ears, follow up with your tongue, and let anger straggle along in the rear. God's righteousness doesn't grow from human anger. So throw all spoiled virtue and cancerous evil in the garbage. In simple humility, let our gardener God, landscape you with the word, making a salvation garden of your life. Don't fool yourself into thinking that you are a listener when you are anything but. Letting the word go in one ear and out the other. Act on what you hear. Those who hear and don't act are like those who glance in the mirror. Walk away and two minutes later have no idea who they are or what they look like. But whoever catches a glimpse of the revealed counsel of God, the free life, even out of the corner of his eye, and sticks with it, is no distracted scatterbrain, but a man or woman of action. That person will find delight and affirmation in the action. Anyone who sets himself up as religious by talking a good game is self-deceived. This kind of religion is hot air and only hot air. Real religion, the kind that passes muster before God the Father, is this. Reach out to the homeless and loveless in their plight and guard against corruption from the godless world. Would you join me in just a A brief prayer. God, this morning we give thanks to you for your love for us and your grace. 
Help us to connect the dots between that love and that grace and the way that we think and the way that we feel and in the way that we act. May all of these be in sync with one another so that you are proclaimed in our lives. Amen. Well, I've been around the church for a while now, and I realize that different people have different reasons for liking something out of the Scripture. Some of you love the poetry of the Hebrew Scriptures, the book of Psalms in particular, particularly when it's read from the King James Version, and you, maybe you wonder why we don't use much of that anymore. Some of you love the epic saga of the Bible with its family intrigue and mystery as generation after generation after generation is told on the pages of of the Bible. Many of you are drawn really singularly focused on the Gospels, the four Gospels, and you're really interested in the, the life story of Jesus. And a few of you are laser focused on the end times and the mystery of what's going to happen just over the horizon. And so your focus on the now is only in service to the not yet. You're sort of disabled in in the, the moment of the now. But many of you are drawn to the bottom line. You are drawn to the bottom line. Let's get with it, Pastor. What does this mean, you think? And some of you say... And over the next few weeks, what we'll do is we'll soak ourselves in this book of James, which is practical advice for living the Christian life. This is not an intricately confusing, complicated theological defense of Christ. There are some passages in the New Testament that are are just that, that are, are constructed in such a way to wage an argument. There's not much of an argument here in this book. There's not much of a defense of anything other than what does it mean for us to be and to live in Christ's story. It's not an obscure defense of some Christian argument that's going on, and the New Testament is actually full of that, of the arguments that take place between the early churches. They're hammering out what does it mean to believe, and what is it that we believe. There's not some ancient theological viewpoint that's here. This is very pragmatic. If we were to have a marker board and I was to give you a marker and say, draw me what a Christian is, you would begin to think about the things that we ought to be doing and the way life ought to be done. So it's this practical teaching on the main issues of the Christian life. Scholars, a lot of scholars, go to the book of James as the starting point for Christian ethics this question that wants to ask, what is it that we do? What is it that we don't do? How is it that we construct a life together using the teachings of the, the Christian faith? And so a lot of ethicists start here in the book of James. It's a great place to start. When we read these words, though, and seek to incorporate them into our daily experience, we realize we're hearing from someone who is pragmatic to the core, I'd bet you know some people just like this. If you work together, there's not a lot of these late-night conversations that are philosophically minded. It is very pragmatic. This is what Soren Kierkegaard called a long obedience in the same direction. This is a phrase that Kierkegaard is famous for. 
this long obedience in the same direction. And it's his notion of simplicity. It's his notion that, one, that a believer can will one thing over and over and over again, polishing on that idea and making it rich and real. Doing it so much and so often that one begins to understand this deep sense of spiritual intent. In order for faith to be determinative, we must take our faith with us everywhere we go. To our school, wherever you go to school. At what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus at school? You don't check that at the door. Same thing with work. This is where the majority of your week goes, to school or to work. And so these are things that we have to do. These are the ways in which we make Christianity practical, is we think about connecting the dots, one after another, to the point that it is internalized in everything that we do. We take our faith with us to work or to school or to the neighborhood. And most would call the work that we do, even students, this is our vocation. Um, I was telling my little three-year-old granddaughter who's now in class all day long, and I was telling her this is her work that she does. Mommy and Daddy go off to work. This is her work. And she said, it's not work. (laughs) She had me on that one. It's great fun. The notion of a vocation comes from a Latin word, vocare, which we interpreted as a calling in life, a vocation. We take that word in Latin and turn it into a word that we can use in English, our vocation. What's your vocation? The way we introduce ourselves, one of the stock questions is, what do you do for a living? Well, I do this or I do that. But to begin to think about that in the deeper meaning of what it means to have a work to do as a vocation, It's the way that we interpret our calling in life. I understand that there are many, many people who don't look at what they do as a calling. I want to reframe a piece of that, not to try and get you to think something you're not willing to think, but to see something in a new light. Frederick Buechner claims that we know our calling to the work we do as the work we need most to do. And then secondly, he says it's the work the world needs us to do. So they come together. This work that I do, it's the work I need to do. I retired two years ago, two and a half years ago, and lasted about six weeks, and then I got a phone call. And the phone call was, uh, Keith, one of our churches, local churches in St. Louis, the pastor died suddenly. Okay? And the, and the call was, would you go and preach there next week? And then for as much as you're able to give them. I gave them seven weeks because I already had an interim position over in Illinois figured out. And so I called myself the interim before the interim. One, to, just to be with them in worship in a sequence of weeks and to invite them to think about their grief and to think about what they want to do and where they want to go next. And so that was the the way I unpacked it for myself. It's what I need to do. That's the point I'm trying to make. It's a part of my vocation, what I need to do. And then what the world needs me to do. I was available. So I got the call. 
To put it in other words, here's how Beekner says it. The place God calls you is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. I love that. There's some passion about that. In our scripture today, James warns us to be prepared for the coming of temptations. It's not unusual, he warns, to be confused about who you are and what you need to do and where you need to go. That confusion is natural for us. And it's part of the challenge of what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus is to figure those things out. And so James gives us some help. He says to remember that God never changes. It's pretty simple. It would seem that it's self-evident. But sometimes that's really hard for us to understand, that God is in the, the work of being the same with us, needing the same things from us consistently. And so he turns somewhat poetic. Every good and perfect gift is from above, he says, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Uh, All day long, the shadows are shifting. That's our native world. In this spiritual world, the shadows never shift. And God is always consistently with us. In order to live with confidence, we need to realize God never changes and whose light can be trusted. And James understood that in the darkness of nighttime, it's difficult to keep our orientation steady and true. Um, I don't know what you're like when um, you get up in the middle of the night and all the lights are off and you go, hopefully you're awake enough to utilize your native sense of direction and find your way from point A to point B. Maybe it's just to the light switch. Maybe it's the door to the bathroom, but this is the way it is. It's an old wisdom to us urban dwellers to be able to walk outside and to go outside and to pause and look. And to look up into the sky and to realize we have an understanding now of what it's like for night to be here without all the city lights to guide us. I spent a night one night in Big Bend National Park in the back end of my pickup. Uh, I didn't rent a place. I just threw in a mattress and went and camped out in my pickup. And in the basin, the Chisos Basin, I watched at night as the stars over the evening rolled across the sky. Every time I would wake up, I would recalibrate. It was this majestic look at the way in which the heavens are turning, and we lose track of all of that. James invites us to look upon the markers that have been flung out into the world by God in creation. Maybe those are stars for you. Maybe it's the steady counsel of a good friend or maybe it's your family that gives you a marker of who you are and where you go. But he goes on. He, he doesn't stick with a, um, a comparison for too long. And he, he changes. He moves into something else to say. In order to live the Christian life out in the workplace, we're given very practical advice. 
You must understand this, my beloved. See, he's attaching himself to his reader. Let everyone be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for your anger does not produce God's righteousness. Uh, we live in a world that is soaked in anger. Anger. Uh, I had uh, one of my predecessors in, uh, in um, Kansas City came for one of those, like a 50-year anniversary, and he was the storied pastoral theologian. He counseled with people. He understood the way the inner self worked. And in privacy, he said to me, why are you so angry? Ugh. Wow. There was no hiding from him. And I began to talk with him about what it was like to be the pastor of this particular church at this particular time. And Churches go through seasons and ministers go through seasons and we're all vulnerable to the power of anger. And so James paints a strong picture for us to consider by asking, what do you see when you look into a mirror? One whose life is not committed to Christ looks into the mirror and after just a few moments forgets what he or she looked like. This is the comparison that James paints. There's something, some depth of meaning there. Uh, you know, we could sort of pick it apart in our scientific minds, but in the depth of the metaphor of the mirror is what he's drawing us to. By looking into the mirror of God, we can determine whether our life is being lived according to the practice of the wisdom of God. My pastoral predecessor, my friend, was holding up a mirror to me about this inner world that I was experiencing because I was the everyday working stiff pastor in a difficult church. And um, he could see that in me. Professor Martin, Ralph Martin, helps us pull all these pieces together into a coherent message you can pack away into your pocket. You know, a little pocket-sized version of Christianity, something you can carry with you throughout the week. And he claims the book of James involves all the parts of the body. He goes to the body as his reference point. The tongue rarely speaks and never in anger. The ears hear the word and obey. The eyes see and remember the images reflected in the law of wisdom. The hands and the other parts of the body that are meant for service will carry out the deeds that are practical evidence that a person knows the law of freedom. That's an old adage. It's 2,000 years old. It took a while for this book of the Bible to be accepted into the New Testament. It took a while for the church to live with it and to understand what it meant. And so it's a very, very old practical message. He replied that he recognized the problem with most of us is that there are still parts of us that haven't heard. I sort of like that. It gives us a sense of grace that there are parts of us, tongue or ears or eyes or hands, that haven't quite yet submitted themselves to the practice, the diligence of the practice of being a Christian. 
I love the line from Francis of Assisi. Preach the gospel all the time. Always, he says. And if necessary, use words. And to that, James would say amen to that kind of freedom. Amen.